Hello and welcome to Parently, where we tap into the unique experiences and perspectives of parents to celebrate the joys and honor the challenges of child rearing. With new interviews each week, this is a podcast for moms and dads seeking an empowering community and a little levity. Now here's your host, Kelsey Higgins. Hello and welcome to Parently. I am grateful you are joining us today, and I want to start by taking a minute to introduce our guest. As a clinical psychologist, Andrew Fuller works with many schools and communities in Australia and internationally, specializing in the well-being of young people and their families. He is a fellow of the Department of Psychiatry and the Department of Learning and Educational Development at the University of Melbourne. He is the author of several books, including Tricky Behaviors, Managing Challenging and Confronting Children While Staying Sane, and has co-authored a series of programs for the promotion of resilience and emotional intelligence used in over 3,500 schools in Britain and Australia. Andrew has established programs for the promotion of mental health in schools, substance abuse prevention, the reduction of violence and bullying, suicide prevention programs, and assisting homeless young people. He conducts workshops for organizations, parents, students, teachers, and health professionals on a wide range of topics. And somehow, even with all that going on, he still has time to join us today for an episode of Parently. Andrew, welcome to the show. Hi, Kelsey. It's great to be with you. Oh, so glad to have you. And you're a day ahead of us over there in, in Australia. So what is the future like? Yeah, tomorrow's going to be fine. It's a fantastic day. <laughs> you wouldn't believe how good it is. So uh, just really look forward to it. It's going to be amazing, you know. That oh, great things it. are going to happen to you. It'll be just terrific. <laughs> be one of the best days of your life. <laughs> Wonderful. All <laughs> right. I know we have a lot to cover and I don't want to mess with things. So I'm going to dive right in. Tell me about yourself. How did you become interested in this field? Well, I started out my professional career in psychiatric crisis team. So I was sort of... <laughs> Oh. sitting in on bridges and uh, with people who were looking a bit intently towards the bottom. Wow. And I was interested in sort of sieges and things like that. And I've become a bit of a crisis junkie in a way. I get dragged into bushfire situations and earthquakes and sometimes more dire you know, shootings and so on. But um, that sort of led me to get really interested in how people recover and how they get beyond those points in their lives. Mm. And so I sort of studied that concept that's so well known now, but wasn't well known then, called resilience. And um, basically looked at that in, in depth for families as well. And of course, when you're trying to prevent people ending up on that bridge, thinking about, you know, life not being worth living, mm. um, you start to go younger and younger and younger, of course, because you're thinking, how do I prevent that? Then how do I prevent that? And mm. so, of course, that leads you to thinking about families and how you can help them to function really well. So it's been a great career to really focus on just help, helping helping people to live lives that they can just fall in love with, I guess, is the, the, the sort of mission I have, really. How do I help people to create futures they can fall in love with? Yeah. That's beautiful. What do you enjoy most about working with children? Is it the impact you can make? 
Well, I mean, one of the great things about psychology is you can get away with anything, really, almost. And so you can kind of study anything about life, right? So it's, it's a fantastic career because, you know, I can dabble into areas about feelings or thinking or behavior or learning. Or, sure. And so I enjoy all of that kind of stuff, but I also enjoy just the capacity to sit with a uh, an emerging brain and just watch how it sort of unfolds. It's a remarkable thing. Kids, children, teenagers are incredibly smart these days. And I'm just, I often sit and I'm just astonished by their smarts and their morals. And mm. um, I mean, they don't always behave that way at home. I know that. But um, <laughs> in, in by and large, I mean, I get to work with kids, not only individually, but in schools around the country and overseas. And uh they astonish me in terms of their capacity. So it's, it's a delight. So Andrew, let me ask you a strange question. Does geography impact children at all in regard to, will what you're talking about today be applicable to kids in any country? I think that always the, the culture and the environment that you grow up in has a powerful determinant of what's valued and what's not valued. Mm. So, so I think it's important to think about that. But um, there are things that are common human experiences that go beyond that. But there are always some areas of the world that are at heightened risk uh, and others that aren't. So I've worked in the UK and the States, in Hong Kong and South Africa, in Bali, and so all over, all over the place, really. And so have worked with lots and lots of people. So there are more commonalities than I think there are differences, which mm. I think is a nice thing to, to know about humans. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think I, it's always thinking, well, some some cultures have more challenges than others because they value different things. Sure. And uh, we need to just counter for that. So, yes, I think is the, is the brief answer. Sorry. <laughs> no, I, that's, yes. a, that's a great answer. I should answer. have just said yes. Okay. <laughs> so, Andrew, I mentioned your book in the introduction there, Tricky Behaviors, Managing Challenging and Confronting Children While Staying Sane. How do you define tricky behavior? Well, having seen thousands of kids over many, many years, mm. I sort of finally decided that there are there are two, broadly speaking, two groups of kids. There's your nice, lovable, amiable, agreeable, delightful child. The sort of kid in a home setting, you say, please clean up your room. And in a matter of weeks, it's done, really. That's wonderful. <laughs> And then there's a second bunch of kids, the feisty ones, the fiery ones, the kids who've got a mind of their own, the willful ones, the kids who are going to look you in the eye and basically challenge you, the tricky kids, the kids that aren't always the easiest to parent. Mm. But And so I had lots of these kids dragged into my therapy room by often despairing parents who felt they were at fault and they're not. Um, but I also realized that these kids, while difficult, there's no doubt about that, are also the movers and shakers of the future. These aren't the kids who are going to be content with the status quo. These aren't the kids who are just going to go, yes, you know, I'll do that. I'm going to be compliant. These are the kids who are going to shake the future. And so in a way, learning to capture their spirit, their kind of funky kind of I'll question everything kind of attitude, (laughs) really helps us to shape a better world. So 
and it helps them because, of course, some of these kids get pretty bad press while they're while they're questioning the status quo as well. Yeah, as you explain that, there's going to be parents that are like, "Oh, yep, that's my kid." So, what advice do you have for them? Well, that's a that's a that's a broad question. Um, so uh, there's a number of different ways that we can do this in the in tricky behaviours. Because when I was on those bridges with talking to people who are in difficult circumstances, I was thinking, how do you how do you create conversations that create change? How do you create conversations that um, diminish the amount of conflict that's going on in somebody's life? And I came up with an acronym of Resolve, which we can go through if that's if we've got time, Kelsey. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, please. Basically, talk about different stages of, of really thinking about bringing people back down. So one of the things I think as a world we're not that good at is when there's a dispute, when there's a difference of opinion, we're not really good at settling it. We're, we're much better at disputing it. Mm. And so we're much more prepared to be argumentative than resolving. Mm. So, so so the acronym RESOLVE, perhaps we'll just go through this in segments, if that's okay, of course. The first, so it's an acronym, and RESOLVE, basically, the, the R stands for RESPOND WITH RESPECT. So in a sense, clearly in a family, what we want to have is interactions that are marked by respect rather than by disrespect. Now, the person, of course, who has to kick this off in any family are going to be the parents, because the parents or the parents sets the culture of the family. Mm. And so, when the parent, when the kids set the f- the culture of the family, it's hell. So we don't want that. You know, you've got to basically <laughs> say, "Well, okay, I'm the one with the frontal lobes here. I need to do this. So I'm going to be the one." So the first thing that I teach parents to do is to realise that you don't have to show up to every argument that you're invited to, oh. and that's a critical lesson, because some people think if there's an argument on offer, I need to be there, right? Mm. because everything becomes a contest over do they respect me or not. But mm-hmm. there are some times, and Kelsey, I don't know whether you've ever had this experience, where the best thing as a parent you can do is basically go, oh, that's very interesting, dear, and walk the other way. You're completely <laughs> disinterested. Yeah, I'm not I, interested in arguing about this stuff. I, I, I love the way you say that. You don't have to accept the invitation. I've, I've never thought about it that way. I really like that. <laughs> I do. It's very freeing for people, isn't it? You know, yeah. just go, oh. It doesn't seem so polite to be an invitation, but I suppose it is. Well, let me just talk a little bit about that, if it's okay. That they um, There's a part of the brain called the anterior cingulate gyrus. Now, I know I shouldn't have a favorite part of the brain, but this one really <laughs> is my favorite. And, and the reason it's my favorite is because it's responsible for more referrals to my psychology practice than any other part of the brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> and so it's it's worth a lot of money. Um, and so basically the anterior cingulate gyrus basically is about concentration. Now, it's not just being able to focus, which is important. It's being able to shift your focus. So it's like a gear shifter in the human brain, how you move. And so people that get this part of their brain stuck can't change their behavior according to context. So how I should behave in a schoolyard is different to how I should behave in a classroom, how I should behave in a pub or a hotel is different to how I should behave in a church, how I should behave when I'm hanging with my friends mm. is different to how I should behave at a job interview. Mm-hmm. And people that can't get stuck, so who can't shift, get stuck. And so they, they do the same stuff over and over again. But kids that have this become incredibly oppositional. These are the kids 
that want to argue about everything. Mm. And they're legendary, really. Their first word is nut. Their first word is, their first phrase was no way. And their first full sentence is no way you can't make me the boss. You're not the boss of me. Mm. I don't know if you've ever heard that statement, but that's Every pretty common. Every person listening to this right now is thinking of that person. And it might be them, but they're thinking of that person that you're describing. <laughs> And these kids are amazing because, you know, I'm sure the parents listening to this have been much wiser than I've been in my career. But I'd turn to these kids and I'd say, well, do you like getting into trouble? And they'd go, no. Nah. Do you like it if people get upset with you? And they go, no. Nah. Do you like it if I have to threaten you with the consequence? They go, no. Nah. And then I'll ask them the same, the same stupid question I've asked them 3,000 times before. I'll say, so, so why, why do you do it? And they always answer the same way. They go, I don't know. <laughs> And it's taken me a long time to realize they're actually being honest with me. Mm. They really don't know. Mm. And their brains are stuck. And so if anyone's going to unstick their brains, it's the adults around them, not mm. them. They mm. can't do it. So, that, <laughs> so that's the first part. So basically it's about responding with respect and not showing up to every argument because there'll be some that you just go, really? I don't need that one. Um, sure. The second part is the engage. So the E in resolve is engage. And clearly... When we decide to be involved in an issue, you want to do it when it's fresh and young rather than it's old and stinky. So wait for, so rather than waiting for either you to have a head of steam and be angry or for them to have a major problem, you want to be on the front foot about some issues. Now, you don't want to take on too many because, of course, you know, you try and, you try and do too many, you get exhausted. Sure. So these, these tricky kids with tricky behaviours, have more energy to put into any battle than any parent does. So if you take on too many issues at a time, they just out, outrun you, essentially. And so you give up. And we watch that all the time. So essentially, you know, so the ability for these kids, I mean, their definition of what nagging is and a parent's definition of nagging um, is nagging a term that is used in your culture? I'm sorry, I, I should I shouldn't assume that. Oh yeah, yeah. Okay, so so basically, kids nag, right? So yep. I I find a tricky kid will ask for something on nine occasions before even thinking about giving up. Mm. And most parents probably give up about the third or fourth time. They just give in, right? Mm -hmm. So realizing that the average child is going to ask for you know, can I have an ice cream? Can I have an ice cream? Can I have an ice cream? Nine times, basically. Unless you know that, you give in after three or four, and I'm sick of you nagging, and here you have the ice cream, right? right? Even though you don't want to give them one. Um, so that's useful. The other part that I use, because teenagers are different than kids, of course, and teenagers do a different strategy. They shut up. And so basically it's hard to get much of a sort of logical word out of them. Mm. And so then you've got a drip feed through your engagement and your drip feeding. I use the theory of the three traffic lights. So essentially talking to teenagers, but most effective when they're horizontal or trapped in a vehicle. <laughs> That's your rare chance to impart some parenting. The rest of the time, you're just wasting your time. Wow. If okay? you take nothing else away from this episode, that's some good advice. <laughs> so then as a parent, you're sitting in the car and you make a suggestion of some some idea, who knows what it is, right? And then you've got to endure three traffic lights of silence before they'll utter a thoughtful response, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. So 
the really hard part for parents is to shut up, to be quiet for three traffic lights, because it's so tempting to fill in with all the rest of the words. But that just becomes white noise to a teenager. They just listen to any of it then. Mm. And so you've got to learn to do that. So that's the engage part. And then it's basically seeking understanding. Now, here's where we get into really interesting territory. So the aim in a family has to be to have misbehaviour, the abnormal state, not the normal state. Because if it's the normal state, it's hell to live there, right? And so nobody's happy. Right. And so we, we want to convert misbehaviour into the abnormal, unusual state. Now, we can talk about information processing pathways in brains, of which there are many. But in terms of emotions and feelings, and I've just put out another book called The A to Z of Feelings, um, there are only two major pathways. Now, one's driven by the amygdala that kicks off a fear, pain, stress response. Mm. And the other is driven by your hypothalamus and your pituitary gland that are releasing oxytocin. Now, oxytocin, I'm sure you've heard about. It's the hormone of love, the hormone of connection, the hormone of trust, the hormone of friendship, the hormone of, of, of belonging. Mm-hmm. And so we have a choice. And parents today have greater choice than their parents did and way more choices than your grandparents did. So you have to have a choice as a parent. Do I want to be a parent of the amygdala or do I want to be a parent of the oxytocin? Now, no prizes for guessing which one I'd recommend for you because mm-hmm. oxytocin is a lot more fun, but, you know, it's up to you. Um, yeah, okay. Now, so to be a parent of oxytocin requires a language change in families. And the language change is from why to what. Now, obviously, we'll still use the word why, but when we use the word why a lot in families, it often becomes interrogative. Why would you do that? Why aren't you ready on time? Why would you hit your sister? Or whatever it might be that goes Mm -hmm. on, right? And so, but remember, what we're trying to do is to make misbehavior the abnormal state, not the normal state. So Mm -hmm. a much more powerful word is what. So to go, Kelsey, what's wrong with you? What's happening? You're not normally like this. What's, what's, What's going on? Are you all right? Mm. And then then quite often to use an acronym that I call HALTS, which I write out about in the book, that basically to, to say, are you hungry? What's going on? Are you you're behaving in an odd way? Are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? Are you stressed? What's going on for you? Mm. Now, you, won't, you obviously won't always ask a child whether they're hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed, but just thinking it provides a parent with a more considered kind of response, I think. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I love yeah, that. And, and the kids going, "Hang on, you're not upset at my behaviour. You're thinking I'm in I'm in trouble." And that's a change of framework for that child too. Mm. That makes sense. Yeah, that's really interesting. We'll be back after a short break. Today's episode is sponsored by Strip. After several months of maternity leave, I am back to work which means I'm also back to wearing makeup. While I do enjoy wearing makeup, I have never enjoyed the process of removing it at the end of the day. Until now, I've been using a new product I love called Strip. It does more than just remove your makeup, though it does do that well. It is skincare that truly nourishes your face with nutrients and vitamins, leaving behind noticeably healthier looking skin. 
It's made up of clean ingredients and it doesn't have a zillion steps that frankly, I just don't have time for. I've even shared it with family and friends and we all agree it leaves your skin feeling so soft and looking replenished. My favorite product is the Caviar Jelly Remover. It removes my makeup while hydrating with these fun bursting nutrient bubbles. Support your favorite podcast with an awesome product. Check out Strip and use my discount by visiting stripyourmakeup.com forward slash apparently strip your makeup not your skin now back to parenting with your host kelsey higgins andrew you mentioned that parents today have more choices than parents of the previous generations what do you mean by that well i think we just you know we've lived we live in a more enlightened world i mean okay sure more information yes it wasn't that long ago that you know children was expected not to be seen or heard mm. Mm. <laughs> well these days they are being seen and they are being heard and um but we in terms of just our understanding of different roles i mean mothering has changed over the generations but fathering has changed dramatically and thank goodness it needed to as well i mean mm-hmm. you know for lots of previous generations fathering was this absentee character that would show up occasionally fall asleep on the couch and grunt at you um (laughs) you know it wasn't much of parenting really was it and Mm -hmm. today's fathers i think okay we can there are still ways to go but at the same time they've come a long way than they used to be right yeah that answers my question thank you (laughs) okay (laughs) so um the next part sort of basically observe the pattern so I think often when we've got a child who's behaving in ways that are angry or distressed or uh, in negative ways, it's a bit like watching the surf rolling into a beach. And so there are peaks, but there are also troughs. And you can kind of watch them. It's interesting to watch and think about them like a wave because you'll sometimes see children who get really upset and they're frantic, right? And then they start to calm down. And just as they start to get into the trough, it's almost like they become alarmed that they're calming and they try, (gasps) they kind of rev themselves Mm -hmm. up again. I don't know if you've ever seen that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's Mm -hmm. fascinating to watch kids do this. Uh, Or sometimes you'll get a kid who's really distractible who suddenly focuses and then they kind of go, no, 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 you've got to jump off and go and, and, and tear around and do something else. So you've got, moments brief moments of those in those troughs where you can actually do something different whereas when they're at the peaks you've got no hope Mm -hmm. and so learning the art of good timing is about doing effective parenting because you know you don't want to be working too hard at this really you've got other things to do there's 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 a life to be led out there you know you've got bigger issues to do anyway um and so just learning that helps a lot and then the then the l is lowering the tone now here i have some well i don't know it's distressing news for parents but it's important news that behind your child's behavior is not conscious thought on many occasions so basically most children aren't basically lying around or or sitting around going my mum would be delighted if I did that. I really, you know, my father would be over the moon. Mm-hmm. They're not. They're not doing that. So basically, lots of child behaviour is not driven by thought. It's driven by the neurochemicals washing around between the synaptic openings in their brain. 
And so understanding the neurochemistry of behavior gives parents much more chance to change behavior because that's what's really driving the behavior. And it also helps parents not to take behavior so personally. Because, of course, if you take every kind of barb and, I mean, kids can say sometimes the most heart-withering things, can't mm-hmm. they? And you can be devastated by it, going, mm-hmm. you know, after all I've done, you ungrateful child. You know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> <laughs> it's hard not to take it personally. It is. So it's important to think, okay, well, maybe neurochemically what's going on behind a child who's misbehaving is a brain that's not at that moment working well. So there are four neurochemicals that we particularly talk about in tricky, tricky behaviors. Dopamine, which is the, the basically the, the part that really creates motivation. There's adrenaline, which, of course, makes kids chatty, ratty, and scatty. They're all over the place and can't be quiet because they can't settle. Mm. There's cortisol, where sometimes they become monosyllabic. How are you? All right. What are you up to? Not much. What have you been doing today? Nothing. Who did mm-hmm. you have lunch with? No one. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's scintillating conversation. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then there's serotonin, the most powerful antidepressant known to humankind. And learning just to recognize the signs of that, where they are either glum or motivated and so on and stressed out. And changing those things makes a gigantic difference. Sure. It's then about value adding. The V is is value adding. Can I help? What can I do that will assist? But the last part of it, E, is empower. The long-term aim of managing a child's behavior is not for you to continue managing their behavior. Mm -hmm. It's for them ultimately to learn to manage their own behavior. Mm because you're not going to necessarily want to hang out with them for the rest of your life. There might be (laughs) holidays you want to go on, you know, Um, (laughs) things like that, right? Right. So so we need to be clear about our aims here. So the empower part is certainly having options, but it's also learning. See, one of the key hallmarks of success in life is being able to regulate your emotions, which simply means being able to calm down when you're upset, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and learning, we all had to learn that. And sometimes we still have to learn it every every so often. Mm-hmm. But we learned it, we, if you were lucky, you learned it as a baby because you had somebody when you were crying in that crib or that bassinet or cot or whatever you were in, basically picked you up and comforted you and, and soothed you. So you had time in with them. They didn't leave you just with time out where you cried yourself necessarily endlessly in a distress. Mm -hmm. So we know that babies that cry most at six months of age who are comforted cry least at 12 months of age. So comforting works. Time in works. And so the same with this, that we there were times when children are... out of whack, really. They're kind of all over the place. They're kind of agitated, stressed, what's going on. And the person who can really help them to learn to calm is the adult. Mm. You know, you're, look, you're looking a bit, you know, a bit upset, Kelsey. Would you, how about just coming and spending a bit of time with me and we'll go and do something and, and we'll move beyond this. So that it doesn't have to be harsh, but it's teaching them over time what are the things that they can do, not just being dependent on you to do it, that they can do when they're distressed, when they're feeling 
overwhelmed? Is it doing a drawing, reading a story? I mean, computer games are an easy solution, but we want more than just that because that's, okay. you know, just that's too limiting. Is mm -hmm. it talking to people? Is it going for a run? Is it dancing? You know, there's all sorts of things that we can think about. And, and the sort of trial and error as a parent will help you to learn what helps that child to calm down, but also then what helps them to kind of become engaged in things as well. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, mm. that makes a lot of sense. Like everything else a parent is trying to do, we are trying to make them healthy, happy individuals who will survive just fine once once we're all gone. Yeah, and I suppose, you know, you could listen to this and go, goodness me, haven't I got enough to do already? I've now got to learn this this acronym resolve and kind of apply it <laughs> in my family. But in a way, it becomes second nature after a, not a very long period of time. And really, it results in less misbehavior and more kind of positive interactions, which I think is probably good for your own mental health. Yeah. So what would you recommend for a parent who wants to try it, just concentrating on one piece at a time until they have the whole thing together? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I work as a therapist with lots and lots of families. And so generally, as a rule of thumb, what we try and do is create one positive change every six weeks. Mm. And most parents want to try to do more, but I think it's better to do less, to really cement things in. Because what you're building, particularly if the family's been a bit fraught and a bit antagonistic, you're building a new culture. And that takes a bit of time to do. So you've got to have a clear clarity around your intentionality about what you're wanting, particularly if you've been dragged off course by a, a kid that's so powerful and that's so kind of difficult in terms of their behavior that you've basically not ended up with the results you want. And I think when you're a parent with a child who's strong-willed or tricky, as I call them, you often get very bad advice because people often have uh, fairly punitive ways of dealing with those sorts of behaviours. And we know that punishment really doesn't change behaviour. Mm. Punishment brings sh shame, resentfulness and sneakiness on these kids. But as I said before, these kids have more energy to put into battle than you do. So eventually they win hands down, even if you punish them. So you just end up with a hostile family that's resentful. Mm. And so the advice of they, you know, they need to basically be given a firm talking to or, you know, spoil the rod and, you know, spoil the child, all that kind of advice right. or send them to Brett camp or whatever else has been <laughs> suggested. It's just crazy solutions to this. It's just counterproductive. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let me summarize to make sure I, I have it all here. R, respond with respect. E, engage and build belonging. S, seek understanding. O, observe feelings. L, lower the tempo. V, value add. E, empower. Yeah. All right. Resolve. Hey, you I got like it. That. I like that. We'll be back after a short break. Today's episode is sponsored by Strip. After several months of maternity leave, I am back to work which means I'm also back to wearing makeup. Well, I do enjoy wearing makeup. I have never enjoyed the process of removing it at the end of the day. Until now, I've been using a new product I love called Strip. It does more than just remove your makeup, though it does do that well. 
It is skincare that truly nourishes your face with nutrients and vitamins, leaving behind noticeably healthier looking skin. It's made up of clean ingredients and it doesn't have a zillion steps that frankly, I just don't have time for. I've even shared it with family and friends and we all agree it leaves your skin feeling so soft and looking replenished. My favorite product is the Caviar Jelly Remover. It removes my makeup while hydrating with these fun bursting nutrient bubbles. Support your favorite podcast with an awesome product. Check out Strip and use my discount by visiting stripyourmakeup.com forward slash apparently strip your makeup not your skin now back to Parently with your host kelsey higgins what's the biggest uh, misconception and actually you probably already talked about it but maybe perhaps not what's the biggest misconception people usually have when they're dealing with tricky behaviors oh easy that they're to blame that somehow this is a either a bad kid or I've done a bad job as a parent, right? Mm. And they just feel guilty. And really, you've got to think about history here and think about, you know, in our world, there have to be, I mean, we live in a neurodiverse world. Mm. People have different brains and they have different brains for a reason. So in our history, there was a great survival benefit in having the the wild, reckless young person who said, oh, I'm not going to sit here in the camp. I'm going to go over that hillside and find what's there, right? Mm. And so these are these kids. So they're the adventurers. They're the people who are going to shake the world up. Mm. And so this isn't about fault. This is about opportunity. But it... <laughs> But in our world where we want to sit neatly in rows in classrooms or behave in supermarkets where nobody disturbs anybody else, sure, these are the kids that get attention and sometimes bad PR. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the parents then feel like, oh, I'm the fault, you know. So part of my job is really helping parents to realize this is not about doing a better job. It's just about doing what's going to work to build a good relationship. Something that you said just kind of, triggered something in my mind. Do you have an opinion about the increased, I would say, diagnosis and medication around like ADHD in children? The reason why I called my book Tricky Behaviors was because, yes, diagnoses sometimes is useful, but sometimes it's incredibly damaging and limiting. Mm. So, Sometimes we forget to see the child and just start seeing the diagnosis. Mm. So let me give you an example. So when let's talk about attention deficit disorder for a moment. Now, okay, with attention issues, with kids generally, I suppose, I think about children a bit like belly buttons. (laughs) Don't we all? (laughs) (laughs) So there's innies and outies, right? Okay. And so the innies, you've got no idea what's going on inside their head. They're kind of, they're just secretive kids and it's mm. really hard to read them. But the outies, if an outie's having a bad day, everybody knows about it, right? Mm. And so you've got to have different strategies for that. And so when they have attention problems, 
the kids that are innies will be ruminative, focused on some internal cues and not basically accessing what they need to learn. The outies will be basically distracting everybody else and creating mayhem. Mm. And so what makes a difference long term is not just the medication, it's having better relationships, having more attuned parents that can help to shape those kids' lives. So lots of people who had diagnoses as children grow out of it or grow beyond it. And they grow beyond of it because their parents see more to them than probably the diagnosticians did. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. The next question is a bit timely, but I'm curious, do you think or have experience in the pandemic's impact on children's behavior has has it had an impact oh definitely um yes so there's there's enormous effects of this so so perhaps if i start with just one effect and then we'll see if you want to talk more Mm -hmm. one of the things that i think i see a lot in my therapy room uh is what i call what is known as allostatic stress which will be familiar to some of your listeners and not to others. But in some ways, even if you're not familiar with the term, you know about it. So and how you know about it is this. All of us have had the experience of accidentally cutting ourselves or grazing a knee or doing something minor that basically has caused a bit of an injury. And at the time, you go, oh, goodness me, I'm bleeding and I need to get a Band-Aid and you know, fix myself up. Um, but there are other times when you've scraped a knee or accidentally cut an elbow or something like that and it's only later on you've gone oh goodness I'm, I'm bleeding or I've, I've done myself a bit of hurt here mm. um, and you have that kind of delayed reaction and that's what we're seeing now so basically because it was such a, a year of mayhem 2020 I mean it was hard to read all sorts of strange things are going on mm-hmm. you couldn't process it all and so essentially now you're getting almost like bodies are waking up and going, hey, you know. And so one of the signs that we have is that people are experiencing a delayed distress or delayed stress, allostatic stress. And so some will express that as quite profound weariness. People are more tired than they usually are. They'll think, goodness me, what's wrong with me? Have I got some major illness? But actually, it's more generally just this kind of sense of you've been trying to hold it together for so long, and now basically you can start to express the distress. So some children will need that as well, more rest. But other kids, of course, express their distress not through words, but through their behavior. And so you end up with more tricky behaviors as well. Mm. Is there something parents can be doing to help their children process that? Well, I think one of the things that we have to do is to be more mindful of just the need to rest. Mm. Now, it depends on where you live, but if you've had sort of a lockdown, a time when you've been sort of enforced together for longer than normal, Mm -hmm. that's difficult for people. Now, I think if I think about the situation for lots of children I work with, it was really hard. I mean, the parallel I'd say is if imagine that you were locked in for an extended period with one of your best friends 
And then what your best friend decided to do is to use that opportunity to basically improve some of the, the failings that you have in your life. I'm not sure as an adult you'd be terribly appreciative of your friend mm. after a period of time. <laughs> and so, so quite a lot of parents that I spoke to thought, this is great. I'll have some more time with my kids. I can help them kind of learn about different ways. And I watch mm. these kids, their eyes, balls are rolling going, no, get me out of here. Sure, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't need more of this. Right. And so then we've got to be more mindful that we need to have some separate time. So parenting at this stage is about a process of drip feeding, little bits of information <laughs> into the child's minds. The rest of the time, hang loose, have some fun, recover. So in a way, 2020 was like being in a war. We just haven't had victory day yet. Mm. And so we actually need to celebrate the achievements Really, I mean, I know it's not done yet, but at the same time, we need to have some celebration in the world, and kids right. do too. So schools, rather than focusing on let's catch up with all the learning and forgetting about all the learning that did happen during that time at home and dismissing it, basically are rushing around trying to solve everything and catch up on time. It's not about that at all. It's about capitalizing on the lessons that have been learned. Mm-hmm. Mm, I like that. It's it's not a lost year. It should be appreciated for what it was. Well, it's been such a watershed time. I think ultimately we'll look back and go, there was life prior to 2020 and there's life after 2020 and they're different. Mm -hmm. And so it was one of those times in which the world changed. Mm -hmm. People's attitudes to work changed. I think people's value of one another changed. People's fear settings change. There's all sorts of things that change. But um, some of that can be used really to construct a better world too. Mm -hmm. I'm glad I asked you that. <laughs> I am too. <laughs> Andrew, there's a website that I want to make sure that we talked about. And it has to do with children learning in different ways. Is that right? Yes. So um, having done a lot, I, I spend part of my time doing clinical psychology and part of my time thinking about how kids can learn better in schools mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, try to help schools improve as well. And so I do a lot of research on brains and how they learn. And basically in terms of what we know about brains, brains myelinate, which means they speed up their thinking. So about 60% of your brain, Kelsey, is myelinated. And about 40% 40, 40 is not. Okay. okay. Now, the pattern of myelination in your brain, of fast-track thinking, is different for you than from your friends, from your relatives, from anybody else, really. So we are all neurodiverse. We all have different brains. So that means that we are able to process some bits of information better than other bits of information. Surprise, okay. surprise. Mm -hmm. So... So comparing children is just a complete waste of time, you know, saying, you know, compare yourself to that person. No, basically, it shouldn't be about that. It should be about basically how do we help that brain to flourish? Mm. And so in order to do that, I set up a website called mylearningstrengths.com, where if you go on that, you'll see a lovely photo of me. I spent a lot of money on that photo. <laughs> 
worth every penny. Every every bit. That's right. <laughs> and then you can do a free analysis of your learning strengths, and you get a free letter from me that says, "Congratulations, Kelsey. You're really good at this and this. But if you want to get another area, here's a way of doing it." Mm. You can pay twenty dollars to get a full report, but that basic letter is free. And the reason I did that was I thought that very few kids get to hear about something they're good at from someone who's not either their parent or their teacher. Sure. And it's only been up for a short period of time, but 27,000 kids from around the world, from Africa, from Russia, from Hong Kong, from Argentina, from America, have done it. That's amazing. How, it is amazing. How is – how? Well, they just – I think – I think uh, people hear about it and just go on it and uh, word of mouth. And then they email me some of these kids and they'll say things like, thanks, you're the first person who's ever told me I'm smart. Or could you tell my, could you tell my teacher? She says, she thinks I'm dumb or, you know, it's fantastic. It's very heartwarming kind of stuff that kids get. This is cool. This is great. So, um, because I think once, once you sort of know, it's not about whether you're smart, it's how you're smart. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And if you can figure out how you're smart and then use that to lift other areas, you get a kind of contagion effect in your life. But lots of kids decide they're not smart and give up. And that's right. a tragedy. And they do so around the middle part of sort of you know, childhood, eight, nine years of age. Mm. So anyway, that's a really valuable yeah, thing to think about. Yeah, that sounds really cool. What's, what's the age uh, range on that that you, that you think it's applicable to? So it sort of conforms particularly with the peak of neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to restructure itself, and it does it all the time. But we have two peaks in our life. One is a baby, as a baby. Okay. Your brain's changing fast. Uh And then the other one is sort of older childhood, early adolescence. And so that's the time if you can learn about your brain and how it functions, makes an incredible difference in your life. It changes your life course. And so really from about nine years of age through to about 16, 17 is probably the peak of it. Oh, okay. For for students to, or for young people to do it for themselves, but let's say you've got a younger child, you might either do it with them, or you've got a really young child, you might do it based as a parent. You might do it as a parent and sort of have a think about it. But obviously, if you've got a very young child, you want to hold the results pretty loosely because um, well, kids' brains change so fast. So, sure. so what what's true? six months from now might be quite different. So you might want to redo it, for example, every six months and just think about it again. But it's not its not like trying to say, well, that's all you can be, Kelsey, because you're a number smarts person or a language and words person. That's all you can be. It's saying that's the starting point to then build from there to how to lift other areas. Mm, I like yeah. that. Is Did you say parents can take it too? Adults? Yeah, lots of adults do, and they find it really useful. We've had uh, even corporate teams have done it for each staff member and then talked about it so they can utilize the learning strengths in their organization. Mm, do you have a favorite strength? Well, I'm a psychologist, so people skills, you'd hope, would be my favorite, don't you reckon? <laughs> <laughs> But I do love spatial reasoning. I love thinking in shapes and pictures as well, because I think sometimes we're so much in a world of words that we forget sometimes to grab a bit of paper and map it out or sort it out. Mm. 
and just sometimes figuring stuff out by grabbing a pen and paper and just going, okay, I've got that, then I've got that, then I've got that, mapping things out, sometimes clarify things better than just talking them through. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay, mylearningstrengths.com. Yeah. All right, I'll have to check it out and uh, I'll, I'll uh, let you know what my learning strength is. I, I, think yeah, I, I, I think I can guess, but I don't know. Admire the photo while you're there. <laughs> I, I certainly will. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Okay. And then, Andrew, you are an author of several books, but you did just have one come out in North America specifically, right? Yes. Yes. I, uh, I'll just talk very briefly about three, if I may. Yes. One please. is Your Best Life at Any Age. Now, one of the cool things that you get to do if you decide to do psychology is you can study resilience, right? And so I do all these workshops on resilience mm -hmm. and I ask people to map their lives. And so basically a life map is a really simple thing, but it's basically, it's incredibly important to do. So 500,000 people map their lives for me in workshops, which I'm very con really appreciative of yeah. and then I started to put together what I'd found from those 500,000 people into your best life at any age and one of the things that's really fascinating to me is that families have time bombs so basically in most families as a little child you absorb how does this thing called human life work and so without realizing it, you absorb messages around, this is the age to get old, or this is the age to split up, or this is the age to leave home, or this oh. is the age to... And when we look at people's p patterns of their lives and then compare it to their parents' lives, there's this strong overlap of uh, these are the specific ages to do things. Oh, interesting. Now, sometimes, of course, that's great. You ought to do exactly what your parents did because it worked out really well. But there are other times that you don't want to do what they did at mm -hmm, all because mm -hmm. it was a disaster. But if you don't become conscious of those time bombs, you unconsciously replicate them. Mm -hmm. So so basically, if we just suppress knowledge, we kind of express it just in bizarre ways, which is off unthinkingly. So becoming aware of this gives you a choice over the life you want to create. Mm, really interesting. And I, I suppose it probably works on the flip side too, where if there is um, a, a wonderful behavior you're trying to replicate and, and you haven't by that age or you can't, that probably is also a bit detrimental. Yeah, it's interesting to think about that for a moment. I'm not quite sure, Kelsey, how much time we've got, but if uh, just briefly, um, I found that lots of people who had really tough childhoods, really awful times, things that happened to them, and then in their early 50s, they got a kind of chance to reinvent. So it's almost like some of them had a, a second grab at childhood or early adolescence, not in a kind of immature way. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that, but they actually, it was like an opening up of their lives. So they'd kind of... They'd gone through the first part of their life almost wounded by what had happened to them, and that mm -hmm. had caused some suffering for them. And then they got to a, about 49 and thought, stuff this, you know. Mm. <laughs> I've, I've had enough of that. I'm going to basically change my game plan. Mm -hmm. And they did. 
And so learning that that's possible for you is really helpful because there are people out there who've had some pretty tough times. Mm -hmm. And to realize that there is a chance to look and go reconsider your life and reevaluate it. But even if that's not applicable, just being able to find out what now your life may not look like the lives that I've written about in the book, and that's okay. But it's sometimes worth thinking about what most people do at that stage of life, and is that what I think I should do? Because mm. life requires different things of you at different ages. And so understanding that, if you just keep playing the same game plan over and over again, it has a use-by date that you need to actually reinvent yourself at times. Mm. So so resilience is the art of an improvisational art. Of, you're improvising how to deal with whatever life throws up at you. Mm-hmm. Mm, I like that. Very cool. Thank you. And uh, tricky behaviours we've talked about. And the other one is called the A to Z of feelings. Now, I just want to tell you a little bit about this because that's that's kind of fun too. Will, will you say the title for me again? It's the called the A to Z of feelings. Okay. Yeah. So I'm so I'm cooking away here at my in my kitchen, mm-hmm. and I've, there's a cookbook that I've got, which is a great cookbook. Uh, it's written by Stephanie Alexander, and it's arranged A to Z. So if I feel like an artichoke, I've got some recipes for artichokes. If I feel like a, I don't know a zucchini, uh, there's recipes for zucchini. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm thinking to myself, wouldn't it be great to have one of those for feelings? So I wrote one yeah, about different feelings. Now, mm. understanding your feelings and understanding other people's feelings is so critical for having a good life. And I find that most people uh, have not that much understanding of their feelings. In fact, the parallel that I ended up putting into place, that for most people, their feelings are a bit like guests that show up at a dinner party you didn't realise you were happy, having. <laughs> and they show up in the oddest combinations. Some of them don't stay long enough. Others overstay their time. Some are picky eaters. Some are hard to entertain. Um, and none of them get along. And you've got no idea what to do with any of them. Sure. And that's the world of feelings for most people. And so being able to understand different feelings gives you incredible – it's like having a secret power and you laugh. So that's what I did. Hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Do you have a favorite book? You have several. We only oh, it's like three. it's that's that's like dividing between your favorite child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> take the other two. I'll just keep this one. Um, I think your best life at any age. I think really in terms of its power to change people's lives, really the feedback from that is remarkable. So um, people. Just, it's almost like they drop the book. They kind of get to a stage and go, oh, that's me. And they kind of, <laughs> you know, and then they'll email me and go, you wouldn't believe it. <laughs> just, just discover this thing about myself. Um, and so I think that's really cool when people do that. Oh, I love that. So where can folks find your books if they want to uh, look at or read a couple or one or all of them? Well, they're they're all uh, published in Australia by Bad Apple Press, but they're also on uh, Amazon. Mm. uh, Amazon has everything. Amazon has everything. That's right. And I think Booktopia, uh, I think there'll be Barnes and Noble has some. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. They get around. 
That's so. great. Well, congratulations on all of your accomplishments. That's fascinating and inspiring. You've done quite a bit with your life. Thanks, Kelsey. It's, it's often stems really from going, well, I, I need to know more about that. So what will I do? I'll write a book about it. And that forces you to kind of really study it and examine it and put it together. So it's actually very self-serving, really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I'm sh that's humble of you to think that, but I, I, I'm certain after speaking with you, you are helping many, many, many people. So um, I I had a really nice time speaking with you. That was a really interesting conversation. Thank you. Me too. I had a delightful time, Kelsey. So thank you so much for spending some time with me. Wonderful. Well, thanks for joining. And I will take the learning strengths profile and <laughs> maybe check out one of these books. I'm not sure. I'm kind of scrolling right now. Um, I will say the revolutionary art of changing your heart is probably the prettiest to look at. You know, they say don't judge a book by its cover, but I like that one. It's really interesting. I was very concerned about the sort of relationship conversations that were happening. And I, the silence of men concerned me. And so I wrote that book as a, an attempt to try to talk about how do you create a healthy relationship. It's been the least well-selling book. Really? Yep. Maybe if my name was Henrietta. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. But anyway, maybe because I thought it would be really good for men to kind of yeah. talk about this stuff. But Well, maybe no. I found my husband's Christmas present. <laughs> so it's it's basically, maybe I was, really it's called, it, it's about CP, how do you apply CPR for your relationship? Mm. But uh, maybe I should have called it that instead. But anyway, um, it's interesting. Yeah. yeah, I love it. I'll, I'll check it out. Thanks again, Andrew. This has been a very, very nice conversation. Thank you so much, and uh, enjoy. The, no, the evening isn't it over there? So yeah, it's the evening. It's bedtime for me. Yeah. And enjoy your and lunch. I think right, your lunch, lunchtime. And as I said, tomorrow is going to be great. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> <laughs> And to all the listeners, thank you for joining. I invite you to tune in again next week for another insightful conversation. And if you haven't already done so, please be sure to subscribe, rate, and review. See you next time.